Let's go through every single package installed with a Linux install image. I'm going through the software included with Slackware, but these are all open source applications and libraries, so whether you're running Slackware like me, or Fedora, Debian, BSD, or even Mac or Windows, you can probably download, install, and try these on your computer. So chances are, you'll be able to learn something from this podcast. Let's get started. First on the list is C, no, QCA, which is the Qt uh, cryptography or crypt cryptographic architecture. Provides a cross-platform cryptographic API for Qt. That's what this is. It does SSL, TLS, X.500, uh, SASL, OpenPGP, all those different kinds of uh, encryptions and, and cryptography that you need for, for really just managing, you know, your, your passwords and your certificate, your SSL certs and your, um, your, your keys, your shared, uh, private, uh, public keys, all that it's QCA. That that's why it's that that's how that is all uh, that's integrated into your system. That's all I'll say about that. Cause that's really all I know. Next up is QR encode. And this one is pretty darn fun. If you ever wondered how to make your own QR code, I mean, sure, you could probably go to some website out there. There's probably something that generates QR codes really easily. No, it's just in your terminal. You already have it. Do QR encode. QR encode. You get a help. If you don't give it anything, you get a help menu. Bunch of different things. A couple of, a couple of required options like dash O file name. You have to write this QR code out to a file name. I don't exactly know why, because it is possible to display a QR code in a terminal. Uh, there's a really great phone QR code, um, a, a, a way of transferring information from your phone to your computer that just uses QR codes. And you can do that from, from your terminal. It just shows you a QR code right there in your terminal. So it is possible, but uh, I guess this application QR encode didn't think of that, which is fine, but you do need to do a dash O and then the file name. You can also do a dash T to specify what kind of file you're generating. So you can do PNG, uh, SVG, ASCII, UTF, uh, XPM, EPS, a bunch of different ones. The D it defaults to PNG. And I'm trying to think if there's, I mean, there's a bunch of other things that you can specify, but most of it you don't have to specify. So the, 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 the easy way to do this is for instance, QR encode space quote, HTTPS colon slash slash GNU world order dot info close quote dash O my site dot PNG. I guess that worked. It didn't say anything went wrong. So let's do a display my site dot PNG. Yep. There it is. There's the image. And now I'm going to grab my mobile phone here, switch over to the QR scanner app that I got from F droid point my camera at the URL. It detects that it contains a link and it warns me about it. It shows me the link, which is HTTPS colon slash slash what I typed in. Uh, I just, I checked the link. Yes. Okay. Open. And there it is. There's my website on my mobile. So yeah, you can, I mean, that's, that's the quick and easy way to make a QR code. There, there are more complex ways. You can read data from a file name. So dash R will read the, the input data from whatever file name you provide after dash R. You can specify the module size in dots or pixels. Deep by default, it is three, but if you want the thing to be a little bit larger, then you could make it, I don't know, uh, eight instead. Let's do dash S eight. Uh, display my site. Yeah, that's bigger. That's definitely bigger. So yeah, that's it's QR encode. Um, now again, I'm speaking technically about the library, but I'm 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 demonstrating the command, the library within the QR encode uh, library directory is is the thing being used by the command. Next after that is Qt five. I'm pretty sure I've raved about Qt before. It has probably been a while, but there's Qt is a, a a big project. It's a huge project. I think a lot of us who who don't develop in Qt every day underestimate just how big of a project it is. It is a a, a cross-platform framework for writing GUI applications. So if you need a window to appear on your desktop and then you want to write 
a, an application that appears in that window, you can do that with Qt. It it has it it is a framework. It's not just a language where it gives you a bunch of functions uh, and classes and just sort of leaves everything up to you. It it is a framework, and that can be a positive, could be a negative thing, depending on what you're looking for. The positive, well, the the negative is that you you you're buying a bag of bricks and and of Lego bricks, and you you only get the Lego bricks that you have purchased. Like that's what you have in that bag. You've that's what you've got. So the, and that's why it's a framework. Like you 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 use Qt because you believe that you're going to need a menu bar that works like a traditional menu bar. You'll go up to the menu, you'll see the file, and maybe an edit, and maybe one that you made up, but you'll click on it, and then there will be menu items within that, and maybe there are sub-menu items within some of those. There are alt shortcuts, keyboard shortcuts, that you can trigger the menu with, just a quick keyboard command, that sort of thing. It's very expected, it's very typical, it's normal. There's a toolbar with little icons. There's um, blank canvas um, canvases, there's text boxes, there's just text fields, one being where you can type like a string or a, a sentence, the other being sort of a free form sort of text editing, well, Q plain text edit is what it's called, um, I think. Q, Q plain text edit? Something like that. So, you know, there's, there are, and there's buttons and there's sliders and there's radio buttons and things like that. So it, what I'm trying to say in Express is that you, you've got a toolkit here. You've got a framework that you can use to assemble something of your own. But what you assemble is going to look an awful lot like what you would sort of expect something to look like. Why is that? So that's, that's a, that that's both a positive and a negative, really, because I mean, the positive here is that you is that you get all of that, and you can make an application that does look a lot like all the other applications, no matter what platform you make it on. That's a a huge benefit, and you didn't have to write any of those. You don't have to tell your computer what a button is. You simply have called a Q button widget, or actually Q button, um, and and. And you get that. What about when you want a to pick a file name, a file, a file to open or to save a file as something? Just call Q file dialog, and now you've got the the whole the whole thing, the everything that you would expect in a Q in a file dialog a file chooser. You inherit that all for free, and with all the different options, like you can have a default file name already entered into the name or not. You can have you can go to a specific directory or not. All of these all of these features they're they're already there. So huge positive, but also a negative if you're looking to just build your own everything from from the ground up. I don't believe there are that many people who want to build their own thing from the ground up. Maybe there are some people who think they want to. But very few want to do that and want to continue doing that. And I'm thinking of things like, well, Firefox. I mean, they have their own sort of framework to build Firefox. You know, they've got their own widgets. They've got their their own motifs, their own system for menus. And they've got tabs. Their button bar looks kind of different, you know, and it's themable with a with one click. You can get a different theme for Firefox and, and so on. And that's great. And people have used that in the past to make custom applications. There was a screenwriting application called Celtex or Celtex, C-E-L-T-X. It's gone now. Uh, I think it might have been bought by someone, but yeah, it's it's a dead, dead project. But it, it actually used, like, it, it was just, it was Mozilla uh, repackaged into an application. It was really fascinating. Uh, so people have done that. Blender, of course. I mean, they've got their own their own thing going on. They're completely different sort of style of 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 interface. You couldn't exactly do that within Qt, or or you know, you probably could if you just I don't know, got like a custom canvas and then just drew a bunch of stuff on there. But I mean, really, you wouldn't do that stuff in Qt. You're you're gonna use Qt if you want your application to look like all the other applications. I think mostly that's what people want. And again, I think of the people who don't want that, I think a portion of those people, after a year or two, 
realize that no, actually they did want that. Because there, there's several advantages to this. There's familiarity, user familiarity. You show something to somebody with all the conventions, all the most basic conventions of a computer application and they know exactly what to do. It's real fast. They, they get the hang of it. Or they don't, but they don't, they're, they're not hung up any more than they would by any other application. Um, so familiarity, user familiarity, big deal. Developer familiarity, use Qt, you, you, you know, if you've used any widget tool, to, uh, any GUI framework in the past, you use Qt and it's all, you get it really fast. Yes, the the names of the uh the classes are different like they all start with q for instance q file dialog q message box q applicate or q icon q action i think there used to be a q application is there still a q application i don't remember but anyway oh q main window that's probably actually what i was thinking of anyway um a q string all those things right they're 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 big, important classes that you're going to need, but they're analogous to other things. Like the fact that there's a Q button wouldn't surprise you because there was also a WX button over on that WX toolkit that you used and wish you'd never actually used that one time. Um, or the, the GTK set, you know, there's probably a, a G button or a GTK button or something like that, whatever they call their their classes. So it, there's, there's a bunch of things that there's, it's not a, a it's not a literal copy paste, but it, it's very, very similar because they're again, they're all using basically the same the, the same model, the same scheme. Like this is what we how this is how things happen on computers. We have a main window, maybe we have some tabs or some kind of sub window or paint panes or panels within that main window. We've got a close button or a queue close event anyway of some sort. So you have all that stuff. You can use it in your application. It's pretty quick to get up and running if you've ever used a, a GUI framework before. If not, then yeah, there's there's a learning curve because welcome to GUI programming. It's a C++, um, primarily C++ is the language that they target. They they sometimes have bindings for other languages, but it uh, I have found that C++ is really what they're targeting. They might claim that they have other other availability, but C++ is your best bet. That said, I guess there there is a really cool little system, which I think we've talked about in the past, um, within, like, probably within the KDE section, maybe, uh, the QML stuff. And the QML is, I don't know, the cute markup language, probably, QML. It is a JavaScript-like scripting language, really, that you can use to invoke all kinds of cute elements. So that's kind of nice. Um, and then, you know, they've got, they've got some, some, I mean, they are cross-platform and they aim to be cross-platform. And so if you were to, um, write something for Android, for instance, you could, you can theoretically use Qt to do that. How easy is that compared to anything else? I'm not so sure. I've not tried it. I'm highly dubious of it. That doesn't that doesn't mean anything. It just means I'm uninformed. But uh, I I I often find that that trying to do anything that's not Android Build Studio or whatever it's called on Android, I don't know. I find it a little bit a little bit shaky to be honest. That that's been my limited experience. It could be that they're that that, that it's amazing on Android and I just don't know what I'm talking about. But I mean apparently it'll it'll run you can write stuff for for iOS as well. Uh, and so on. So, so, so it's, you know, Linux, Windows and Mac, Android and iOS. That's kind of what they're, they, they lay claim to compatibility with those things. The, in, in my, again, pretty limited experience here, um, the Linux, Mac and Windows stuff really is, it's very close to kind of a write once run anywhere experience. Not entirely. Uh, Java still, I think, holds, holds the, 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 the prize for for that, but cute makes it makes it pretty easy to to kind of kind of get really really close to that closest I've personally seen. Again, limited experience. I'm not a professional developer. I don't do this all day. 
I could be overlooking a bunch of things. Um, Android and iOS, I have no idea. I mean, it's, you're porting to both of those. You're not taking your code that you're running on Linux or Mac or Windows and just, just saving it in a different format and having it export to Android. It's not like that. You are, you're, you're porting it over to Android. You're porting it over to iOS. So that's, that's an, that's another code base. You're, you're, you still have the security and sort of the familiarity of Qt, but it is a different code base, which gets expensive. I mean, that's that's maintenance, that's bug fixes that you have to do not once for this platform, not twice or thrice for those other platforms, but then again for this other code base, and then again for this other code base. So uh, once again, it's like kind of Java reduces that down as much, I think, as 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 possible, really. So cute. How, how to how to how to do Qt. Well, Qt 5.15 is the version that ships with Slackware um, 15. That's what we have on our computers right now, Qt 5.15. If you go to um, doc.qt.io, Qt, Qt, by the way, that's, that is how you say that. It's Qt. That is, you, that is pronounced Qt. I heard that from the founder. From, he was giving us a talk at the KDE4 launch event at the Google headquarters in some Californian city. And I was there and he said publicly that you pronounce it cute. So cute. Uh, cute doc.cute.io. You will find that the latest, the or the rather cute 5.15 is an LTS, a long-term support release. So this is the current edition you know, it's a currently supported edition right right now. So you can learn Qt with the library loaded on your uh, OS right now, which is kind of cool. Because in this day and age where things are getting updated and swapped out and updated and changed all the time, it, it does feel a little bit often like I can't, I can't use, I can't use all this great stuff that came on my OS because the, the, the project is already five versions uh, away, and so I, and I have to run and keep up with them, and that's kind of encouraged. I mean, that's the model that like Rust and Python and and Go, all of these highly sort of connected and package managed systems work. That's just how they do it. Like it's it's fine. Like you you're just developing on the on the edge all all the time. Not on the ed- the cutting not the network edge, the cutting edge all the time. But with Qt, luckily they have an LTS here and and that happens to be as at the time of this recording the current version uh, you know on Qt uh, uh, or a supported version on Qt and the version on Slackware. So you could start writing Qt code right now just based on what you have installed. And of course, Qt 5.15 isn't the only thing that you have installed. You've also got things like, well, QCA, that's the Qt um, cryptographic API or whatever it was called that we talked about previous to QR encode. There's Qt 5 WebKit, that's here. Qt Keychain, uh, Quazip, Q-U-A-Zip, that's a, a, zip, a zip library for Qt, uh, and a probably a bunch of other stuff that, you know, that I've forgotten by now that was in the KDE set. So there are a bunch of libraries here that you are able to use in your C++ code or your QML code, I guess, to come up with applications that would simply, they would just run on Slackware. You could write it and ship it to all Slackware users and it would launch and run beautifully, provided that you coded it correctly. And that's pretty cool. And there's a there's actually you know a chance that it would run at least to some degree on Windows and maybe Mac. I mean, you might have to you do you know your your coding. You, you have to keep in mind like operating system differences and like where directories are and things like that. And you'd certainly have to compile them for the the target platforms, or you'd have to trust that your user could compile it. F- for themselves um but but it it does that that can work and i think um certainly if you work in it or in software development uh qt is kind of a big deal because with it you can target lots of different platforms across the company you can um you can run you, you can create your own cute uh, plugins and modules and things like that so that uh, you can extend ap- existing applications provided they allow it you can you can add your own sort of plugins to them um, there's there's a whole section on 
creating cute plugins on the doc.cute.io site, in fact. So yeah, it's it's there. You can do it. It's it's all it's it's got a lot of documentation. If you go to doc.cute.io, there's example, there's like an example text editor that you can write today, right now. Write it, compile it, and run it, and and you'll have a text editor all your own. And the crazy thing is, it won't be bad. It's like really, really good. Not really, really good, but I mean, it's you know, it's like a text editor. It's got all the all the functionality you would expect, and that's the advantage of using a, a framework like Cute. There really is. There's. I, I don't want to say there's minimal because that I don't know if that exists at the level of C plus plus. But there's there's not a lot of weird hacks you have to do around oh i'm running this on windows or i'm running this on os mac os or i'm running this on linux cute makes that all kind of go away uh, i've said this before like on a lot of with, with with a lot of platforms out there like mac or windows uh if you want to say access a webcam then you have to you have to get the sdk for the webcam from mac os or from windows and you may still have to do that with Qt, I don't know. But with Qt, a lot of that stuff is abstracted away from you. You don't, you may have had to go get the SDK because they're, they're weird like that, those platforms. But in Qt, once you're in Qt, you don't have to think about those SDKs. I mean, they need to be installed, but Qt knows about them. Qt can talk to them for you. And all you're doing is using the Qt classes to declare yes i have a webcam or or you're going to probe for a webcam but this is what a webcam is look for one and assuming it's there when they click this q button will save a file to this directory in their user data directory called screenshot.webp you don't have to you don't have to write separate code to parse dev slash dev slash video or whatever the webcams are i think it's yeah dev, slash dev slash video on linux or whatever you would have to do for os 10 or mac os and whatever you'd have to do with windows that that doesn't you don't have to do that you just talk to cute cute talks to your system there are probably exceptions but a lot of what cute does is account for for differences like that and kind of shields you from them it's it's a it's a brilliant system. It's really great. Um, there's a lot of cool features to Qt, like the signals and the slots and things like that that just make calling, like referencing other functions from a, a button click super easy. It's it's just, it's a beautiful, beautiful little system. There was uh, for a while, well, actually there still is, uh, a couple of different Python bindings, uh, PySide and PyQt. I think PyQt has, again, become the preferred one, although maybe, I don't know, maybe not, maybe PySide is, I don't know, one of those two Python bindings. You can write cute applications with Python. Now, again, lots of caveats there. The the target system has to have the cute libraries load, loaded on it. The target system has to have the Python cute bindings loaded on it, and so on. But it is it is possible. You can do it. Okay. Next up then is Qt5 WebKit. Qt5 WebKit is WebKit, except for Qt, hence the name, Qt WebKit. Um, WebKit is a bundle of HTML libraries that helps your computer or, or your application, the application that it's being used for, render HTML and probably, I don't know, you know, whatever, JavaScript or CSS or, no, because both of those are actually writing HTML, right? So really it's, as far as I know, it's rendering HTML. WebKit, not everyone knows this, was developed as a library set called K. HTML, which by that first initial, the letter, the initial letter there, you might realize KDE. So KDE had a web browser for a while. We've talked about it, Conqueror, and um, it used, in order to draw pages of, of, of HTML into graphics, it used something called KHTML. And Apple uh, borrowed all of that code, rebranded it WebKit, kind of took it under their own wing, n n not not in the sense of like, oh, here KDE, we're going to contribute code to your project and um, and help you develop KHTML. More like they took it and forked it uh, and made their own thing, which they called WebKit. And WebKit has, I mean, with all of the resources that Apple has behind it, WebKit has become quite the library now. And uh, it is, of course, the probably the 
dare I say, the most popular HTML renderer right now. I mean, it's in Chrome, Microsoft Edge, I think. Tell me if I'm wrong about that. Uh, I, uh, I guess it would have to be in Safari, right? Because it's WebKit. So why would they even have it if they're not using it in Safari? So they're using it in Safari. Um, and then they're, you know, all the, all the different Chrome and Chromium derivatives, like well, Chrome, well, Chromium, and then Chrome, uh, Vivaldi, I think maybe Brave, like all, all the different things. So I think Opera actually has their own renderer, so not Opera, but Vivaldi, which is, you know, used to be Opera and then got forked into Vivaldi. So Cute 5 WebKit is WebKit, and it takes three years to compile, trust me. It, it's, it takes forever to compile this thing. Uh, I tried once and then stopped. I stopped trying and I just load, I load whatever Slackware gives me for, for this. Um, WebKit for cute. So this, this enables you to have sort of a, an HTML renderer within your cute QML code, your little markup quick language cute code. All right. Next up is Q keychain. And you might think that Qt or Q Keychain is like a keychain manager for for Qt. That would make sense. Um, a keychain manager being a place where you store passwords and you know, secrets, secret data that you want encrypted. Um, you might think Q Keychain would be a, a keychain for Qt, and it's not really though. It is. It's actually an API for a keychain storage system. And this is a great example of what I was talking about with the webcam thing, how Qt kind of allows you to think abstractly about about otherwise divergent things. So Qt Keychain uh, is really a, a it's a it's an API that looks at your system at the, the system running the a, a thing an application that calls to Qt Keychain and determines what keychain it ought to use. So on Linux. If GNOME keychain is in use, or GNOME keyring, whatever, uh, is in use, then Qt keychain uses GNOME keyring. Just puts the password that you've typed in to save it, you know, to save that password, puts it right into GNOME keyring for you. You, you, you. So you don't know that you've just interacted with Qt keychain. You think that your application has sort of magically, de- you know, just magically called up the 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 place where you type in a password and click save, um, you know, it just, it happens invisibly. But Qt Keychain is the th- component of this that made that happen. Similarly, if you're running a system, a desktop using KWallet, like I am, then Qt Keychain is happy to use just KWallet instead. It'll just put it into KWallet. Uh, LibSecret, it can also talk to LibSecret. On Mac, it just uses the Mac OS Keychain or the Vault or whatever they call it these days. On Windows, it just uses the Windows Credential Store. I don't even know what that is, but it says that's what it says in the documentation. On Android and iOS, it uses Android Key Store and iOS Keychain and so on. That's the kind of thing, like like I'm tell- like I'm saying, like this is what I'm trying to say about Qt. It takes care of all that stuff for you. You did not have to think about that as as a user or as a developer. You're going to be calling as a developer. You're using Cute Keychain, but really, what's happening is that some other developers have figured out how to detect what system is being dealt with and and which keychain that system is either proscripted to have, like a Mac OS keychain. I, I don't believe. I, I don't even know. I guess. Can you run, you can't run another system. I mean, you could run G, GNU PG or something, but that's not really, I mean, so the code detects the system keychain and then, and, and on Linux, of course, a system keychain could be a couple of different things uh, on, on Mac and, and Windows. It's, it's pretty much set in stone by the, 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 the vendor. And that's what it deals with. Super easy. Quazip, Q-U-A-Zip. That's the next one. Quazip is a, uh, it's a little zip library to um, create and append data to or to read a zip archive because Qt, um, a- as it is delivered, it doesn't have a, a zip library. I don't know what compression library Q, uh, Qt has, actually. I'm not, I'm not entirely sure. Maybe nothing, but I, I wonder if it's more like a um, you know, like a patent issue with with you know, zip the zip format or something. Because if there's a qua zip, then you you'd think, well, it's just so rather if Qt had no compression algorithm hard coded into it at all, 
or included with it at all, then you'd think there would be a qua zip and a qua tar and a qua, I don't know, something else, but there's just a qua zip. So I don't know. Yeah, it's probably, probably cute has access to, to other things, but qua zip, if you want that zip library, you want qua zip. Q-U-A-Z-I-P. That's the whole list of the cues. We're done with the cues, which means that we can go have coffee and we'll come back and do all of the R's. That's quite a lot of progress, I think, or in any way it feels like it's a lot of progress. Uh, let's go get coffee. coffee. I'm still actually drinking Crave, which still sounds more like a cologne than a coffee, but it is a coffee. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna just say that I, I think it's uh, an average coffee. Like it, it's, it's fine. It's a good coffee. It tastes good. And, and maybe, you know, maybe if you weren't used to like really good coffee or something and you had this, you would think, oh, this is really good coffee. I'm just gonna say it's, it's fine. It's an okay coffee. Like it tastes good, but it doesn't, it doesn't do anything exciting, you know? It, it's just, it's just a cup of coffee, which, I mean, that's fine. That's, that's really the baseline requirements. But, um, I think, I think it's just, yeah, a very average coffee. Nothing against Hummingbird, uh, coffee, nothing against, well, I guess something against Crave. I just, I think it could have something, it could be more complex, complex, complex coffee. That's what I want now. Um, it's like almost embarrassing. It's, it's like, I feel like I'm a coffee snob and I'm not a coffee snob. So this is fine coffee. It's, it's fine. It does exactly what it says on the tin. And that is, it's a cup of coffee. All right. Let's talk about Readline. Readline is a, a, a library, a GNU, it's GNU Readline. And this is, this is the the library that sort of provides an interface for you with your terminal. It is difficult to fully comprehend what Readline does, I think, until you have tried a system without Readline on it. I mean, it'll have something on it, but without GNU Readline, it's kind of amazing how much you get with Readline. It's because of readline that you can, for instance, hit the delete key or the backspace key and remove uh, the character, you know, to the left of your cursor. It is because of readline that you can, uh, if you do this, which maybe you don't, but I do all the time, control A to get to the beginning of the line, control E to get to the very end of the line, control B to go move back a character, control F to move forward a character, control D to delete the character uh, forward delete. All of those things, th those are provided by readline. Like those are, that's because readline is on your system. That's how you're able to do that. Uh, have you ever used control K to, uh, copy or, or cut rather cut an entire line of text from, from terminal and then control Y to bring it back later? Well, if so, that's again, read line. So all of these and, and all of these, these are, you know, if you're an Emacs user, you're just, you're just thinking, well, Sounds really familiar. This, this is Emacs. And, and yeah, you're right. That is, that's all Emacs shortcuts, like no different than just using Emacs. However, you can switch it. You could say, well, I'm not an Emacs user. I'd prefer to do, uh, Vim key bindings. It's easy. Uh, set dash O Vi. Now, if you type in, I don't know, echo hello world, and then you decide to go back to the beginning of the line, hit escape zero you're back at the beginning of the line you could do like alt what is alt d to do the the word alt d no i guess it must have been oh wait uh, escape escape alt d no escape alt p no that's paste escape alt no no alts just x's that's what i wanted just x i don't know why i thought there was an alt command that i wanted to do anyway uh, then you can, oh, and then of course, when you're in, uh, editing mode, you, to get back 
into insert mode, you do have to hit the I key for insert, and then you can do whatever it is, or A to, to append, uh, whatever it is you wanted to say, actually, like instead of echo hello world or whatever I put, you could do uh, echo open source, hit return. So yeah, there's escapes and A's and I's depending on your preferences for how you use Vim. Set dash O Emacs to get back to the standards because I'm really struggling to remember all the details of Vim here. Uh, I just have not used it in such a long time. So there you go. That's uh, more or less read line. There's a bunch more. I mean, there's all kinds of different functions. You can see, you can see the default input RC file, which is the configuration for for your 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 read line um, features. You can see the default one that comes with Slackware in, by doing a cat on slash Etsy slash input RC. You can add to that or customize that, override it with a local input RC. So that's in, you know, you could create a, a file touch tilde slash dot input RC. Now you've got your own uh, configuration file and you can put stuff into that. What do you put into that? Well, in the info pages for uh, readline in section 1.4 ish. I mean, it's 1.4, but, and then there's subsections under that. There's a bunch of different uh, commands. Some are currently bound to keys and others aren't. They're just sort of hidden commands. That's, that makes it sound more exciting than I think it probably is generally, but I mean, there are hidden commands that exist in readline that just aren't mapped. They're not bound to a key combination. Don't know why. You'd think they would just assign a key combination to them, but I don't know, maybe they did. Yeah, I don't know why, why they wouldn't. I was going to say maybe they didn't want to override something that someone else was using, but I mean, you're within a terminal. Like, what other, you're not competing with anything, I don't think. I don't know. But uh, you can do that. They, they do exist. You can even test them sort of yourself with the bind command, B-I-N-D, and you could choose to bind um, control J. Nobody uses control J ever. So C dash J colon to single quote. Let's do a dump uh, functions. I think it's plural. Close quote. Okay, so I've just bound the dump functions function to control J. So if I hit control J now, yep, fills my screen with all the different read light functions, whether they're bound or not. And they tell you. So abort can be found on CG. C X C G or backslash E backslash C dash G. Forget what that backslash E stands for. It's something having to do with like an you know an ASCII code or an ANSI code or something like that. Uh, except line can be found on Control M. Alias expand line is not bound to any key. Arrow key prefix not bound to any key and so on. And it goes on like that for like probably you know I don't know eighty lines or something. And the, the bind command, um, I think it's just a built-in, I'm pretty sure. Uh, that's a, I think, which bind? Yeah, there's no bind. That's a built-in command in bash. And uh, it's it's a, a one-off kind of command. Like if you exit your console or your terminal and hit control J again, it, it doesn't, it's not doing anything. Uh, so if you want to bind something permanently, then you would bind it in your dot input RC file and then you'd have to load that dot input rc file i've had mixed results frankly trying to customize this a, a whole lot um one because I, I feel pretty happy with the way it's configured already so there's not a whole lot of customization i feel like i want to do um but even in my experimentation for this episode trying to, to trying to set macros uh, or, or variables within input rc or rather dot input rc I, i've had mixed results sometimes it seems to be taking sometimes it doesn't some of them are as i say they're not visual enough for me to really even have confidence that they are or are not working so it can be a little bit difficult getting the key combination notation correct is, is quite difficult as well i mean it is explained in the info pages so there is, you can research it and figure it out, but I, I kept forgetting what the backslash E versus when to use a backslash C or a, a backslash square bracket. It's just, it's a lot of things that I just don't typically 
think about or have to refer to, I found it pretty difficult. So I think in practice, readline is perfectly fine as it is. But if if you have a need to 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 customize the way you interact with your terminal, readline is is a pretty darn flexible way to do it. There's a bunch of different macros and functions that you probably aren't aware of. There's a lot more options than you may realize. You know, a lot of people kind of go to ZSH for for that reason. Just oh, I want to use Vim vi mode in my terminal and not realizing that it is really really simple to set up i mean you can that that's easy um and i mean set dash o vi in your bash rc i think would probably do it uh, otherwise you can just again put the set editing dash mode vi in your input rc it's really simple um zsh uses readline so a, a lot not all of the features that people like about zsh is just it's just readline in a different you know configured differently i mean i'm not i mean if you want to use zsh use zsh there's a bunch of cool features in zsh and there's a bunch of cool you know theming packages out there nowadays and plugin packages so absolutely use zsh if you want i don't uh right now i'm using bash but you know it's like please use zsh but but also don't think that zsh brings a whole new editing mode when in fact it's just using readline bunch of things that are just using readline um for that functionality like even like mysql or, or at least MariaDB, that that sort of thing, the you know SQL queries, a lot of those use readline, and that's that's why you're able to edit that stuff in the same way that you would edit a command. There's there's a lot that that readline is responsible for, even spanning a command spanning across several lines. That's that's readline. So there, there's a lot of just little things that you definitely take for granted that I definitely take for granted. That it's only there because GNU readline. And I guarantee you will never miss it unless you're ever sat in front of a terminal that doesn't use GNU readline. Then you'll start to miss it. I mean, you'll think that the terminal is broken. That's what will happen. You will think something is misconfigured, something's broken. Nope, it's just not using readline, that's all. Okay, next up is RPC SVC proto, uh, which is the uh, proto.x files from glibc which are missing from libtirpc i don't know the full story here and and i don't care enough about nfs to to look it up but um nfs version 4 i guess maybe dropped sun rpc or maybe oracle dropped sun rpc somebody dropped a protocol that is required and that 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 is used by the nfs the network attached file system or whatever network file system and and so somebody had to pick up the pieces uh so without sun rpc there's this thing called libti rpc and apparently from libti rpc proto.x files are missing i i don't know what that means but the rpc svc proto.x files they're missing from glibc and they're or rather from glibc they are missing from libtirpc so short answer is without this um this library without the yeah this library package nfs just wouldn't work and nfs is um i i don't want to say relatively popular now because i'm not sure how popular it is i mean where it is in use it is very frequently the backbone of the networked file storage these days i don't think it's too far uh to to you know too far of a stretch to say that probably just throwing stuff on the cloud is the way people are doing their shared folders not everywhere i don't think that's happening all over the place but i i think that that's pretty darn common and i would i would venture to say probably more common uh by number than nfs installs but that's what that's why that's there is to make nfs work next up is the rttr library this is the uh c++ reflection library that's it's rttr stands for runtime type reflection Reflection in programming is the ability of an app uh, of your code to not only sort of look at the code while it's you know at compile time or I guess technically at runtime, but I think what they really mean there is compile time functionally because I mean C plus um, plus at compile time you can look through the code to find um, things that you know it. it doesn't technically know about yet that the compiler doesn't know about yet and then 
also to make changes to that at compile time. The the this is like standard practice in something like Java that 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 actually does kind of blur the line between. Actually, I don't know if that's why. I've always thought that it was because Java kind of blurs the line between compiling and runtime. Like there's compiling happening, but but it's also you know running in that virtual machine. So I'm, I'm there's there's a little bit of flexibility there. But with flexibility comes the requirement to be able to really kind of have a grasp on what kind of code exists in this code base. Whereas something that's just, it just gets compiled. I, I feel like you don't like normally need reflection. You need the ability to, or it's nice to have the ability to, to look at the code in the code base and, and compile based off of it. But that's, that's something that for, for, uh, C++, for instance, does already have. That's just introspection. That's not reflection. These are official terms. I'm not, I'm not, tr I'm not making these up. Like it's called reflection. It's called introspection. And that's just kind of like introspection with the ability to look at a class and kind of grep through it real quick to find whether a function or a, a method in Java exists. And if it does, then okay, we can continue compiling based on the faith that that function does exist, that there is such a place as that function. And, and when it's required, we'll know where to find it. Whereas reflection, you can not only look for that function, but you could also take uh, some aspect of that function or that class and set the value of it or that struct or whatever in C++ and set a value. So this is kind of, it's, it's all happening sort of out of order, which is such a luxury, really. Like if you've ever tried to deal with a programming language that absolutely requires you to do things in a specific order, it can be troublesome. I mean, it can also help logically, you know, for you to, to actually have to structure your code such that you're declaring um, variables before you use them, that kind of thing. I mean, it, it does kind of give you structure and it can be useful, but there, I think there's a tip over point where it stops being useful and it just becomes really, uh, kind of problematic, uh, or, or troublesome, I should say, maybe not problematic. Well, I guess sometimes maybe problematic, but functionally for me, it's just been troublesome. It's just like, oh, darn it. I, I, I didn't declare that before I tried to use it, or I declared it in this function and this function exists after this other thing. So how do I, how do I correct that? So, uh, the 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 ability to certainly introspect, but also to to reflect to, for the reflection is quite a luxury uh, that you could that you can kind of have in C plus plus as long as you're using the RTTR library, which is here, or you can just use Java Ruby Gem dash ASCII Doctor. This is a module, as it were. It's called the Gem in Ruby language. It's a module for Ruby uh, that. That, that processes ASCII doc. I'm pretty sure we've talked about ASCII doc before. ASCII doc is a markup light. You might even say a markdown, except that that's already been used. So a markup light language that looks more or less like plain text when you write it. There will be some quirks, like for bold, instead of bold, you would just put like an asterisk on either side of the word. Does that look bold? No, but does it look emphasized? Does it look like you're emphasizing something? Yeah, it does. Uh, for italics, you put an underscore on either side of a word. Does that look italic? No, not at all. Does it look, again, emphasized? Yeah, a little bit. I actually prefer org mode's version of italics for, for that specific one. That's you put uh, two forward slashes on either side of the word. Because I mean, that, that really does suggest, okay, we're leaning to the right now. We're, we're italics from here until here. I think it's beautiful. Uh, ASCII doc, for whatever reason, uses underscores. Um, for links, you put HTTPS colon slash slash example.com square bracket example close square bracket. Does that look like a link? Well, no. I mean, you see that it's a link because it starts with HTTPS uh, colon slash slash uh, and, and you get the idea square brackets. Those aren't usually in links that I've seen. So square bracket, square bracket example. Okay. That was referring, that's like the, the human readable version or, or the, the, the hyperlinked text that goes along with that URL. 
and so on. So there will be irregularities. It won't look exactly like uh, the text of a, you know, just out of a, a, a book, but it's pretty close. It's a lot better or more human readable than uh, angle bracket para, close angle bracket, next line, some text, some text, some text, close para, new para, and so on. You know, like all these emphasis you know, XML tags. Um, but when you process ASCII doc through some processor like ASCII doctor, which this is Ruby gem dash ASCII doctor. So this is the thing that would do that. Um, when you process ASCII doc, you can, you can convert it because you've written it with such stringent, uh, rules. You're applying to these rules of ASCII doc. You can convert it with just one command into HTML5, into docbook5 or docbook4.5 uh, and, and other form PDF, uh, EPUB, lots of other formats. It's plain text, you know, whatever. Uh, it's ASCII doc. Uh, I'm quite a fan of ASCII doc. I mean, I don't, I, some of their choices are a little bit strange to me and I acknowledge that maybe it's not quite as human readable or, or invisible to the human eye as some other things are like Markdown. But, but the advantage of ASCII doc is that there is exactly one ASCII doc. And that means that when people write in ASCII doc, they write in ASCII doc. Whereas in Markdown, there's lots of Markdowns. There's the, the, the really poorly defined original Markdown. And then there's the, the version of Markdown that anyone else wants to, to invent. There's GitHub Markdown. There's probably, um, I don't know, someone else's Markdown. There's all kinds of different Markdowns. And then there's Common Mark, the, the attempt, the noble attempt to kind of bring them all together and say that this is the official Markdown specification. And, and of course, you know, like, like specifications, the, the great thing is that you have so many to choose from. Uh, so ASCII doc is, is ASCII doc. There's no, there's no variant ASCII doc. It's just, it's ASCII doc. If it's not ASCII doc, then it is not ASCII doc. And that, and that's a, a really, really important kind of like, I guess, use of trademark. I mean, I don't know if it's a literal use of trademark. I don't know if it's trademarked, but do you know what I mean? Like that's, it's, that's the reason why kind of like domain ownership is, is kind of important because people will fork things if given the opportunity, which in many cases is great. It's, it's cool. It's improvements and feeding the feedback loop of, of improvements. But with, with these, these syntax formats for text. I, I, I don't see that happening exactly the same way. Um, probably because it's not code. It's just a, it's a convention. It's, you're just asking people to use a certain convention when they write. And ASCII doc has declared that, that, that it is ASCII doc and it is the only ASCII doc, much like DocBook. DocBook in its, um, in the DocBook guide, the TDG, as we, as we call it, um, it says, it states, if it's not, you know, if it's, if you're using tags that are not docbook, then you're not using docbook. And it's kind of the same way with ASCII doc. If you've, if you've invented new things within ASCII doc, then you're not using ASCII doc. And, and I mean, to be quite honest, I'm, I'm using <laughs> at work, I use ASCII doc with some, some special things sprinkled in and I, I'm not, not entirely sure how how legal uh, as it were that is you know I, I don't know that it might be there might be an allowance within ascii doc for those for those escape sequences um or entities really is what they are they're xml entities um but but ascii doc itself is is exactly one way and and you feed it to a processor and you get very reliable output sometimes it's a little bit more, more verbose than i prefer but it's pretty easy to said that stuff away. I've got a script that scrubs it, uh, sort of scrubs the HTML output, for instance. Uh, or you can just dump it to, straight to DocBook and then process it through your XSLT uh, processor and end up with with that reliable output. Uh, but the point is that you keep getting this sort of reliable, these reliable um, processes, these, these, these interactions that are reliable, because it's always exactly ASCII doc. And that's really, really a refreshing change from when you feed one processor your markdown that you did uh, over here, and it spits out a bunch of extra characters that you thought were going to be processed away by the markdown processor. But as it turns out, that they didn't know about those, doesn't know what to do with those. So it just spits it back out into its output. Then you have to set those out. And it, it just gets frustrating. There's so many different, different 
cheat sheets, so many different rule books on, on what is valid markdown. So ASCII doc is, is quite refreshing. And RubyGem ASCII doctor is a brilliant little tool chain because it is, it, it provides so many different options for output. You, you, you have to install the additional like gems or whatever, but you can do ASCII doc dash EPUB three, ASCII doctor dash PDF, ASCII doctor dash PDF dash optimize, a bunch of others that I'm probably forgetting. And it's just a, it's a, an easy way to process ASCII doc text files to end up with, with really whatever you feel like you need. Now that's not the only processor. There are other processors. I mean, there's ASCII doc.py as well, which will just kind of do the basics. It'll take your ASCII doc and dump it out to, I think, HTML or maybe just docbook or maybe both of those two. Uh, there's pandoc, of course, that'll, that'll do some ASCII doc, but really ASCII doctor, that's the way to go. Like if you're using ASCII doc, just invest in the time to learn enough about ASCII doctor to get the additional gems installed for like EPUB or PDF or both if you need both and you'll be able to output all kinds of stuff. The I guess the one the one disadvantage to ASCII doc ASCII doc is that it you know, isn't ubiquitous like Markdown is. I mean, Markdown these days you can paste into WordPress and and it, WordPress just translates it to HTML without even asking. It's just it just knows Markdown. It's it's really really nice. Uh, ASCII doc, I, I don't think that works. I'm pretty sure that doesn't work. I think I tried it and it didn't work. I, th I think I tried it specifically on accident and it didn't work. So you know that that's it's just, it's a little bit limited. I, I end up writing in Markdown. Well, let's just say I end up writing in Markdown and that's, that's indicative of how ubiquitous, lots of big words there, uh, Markdown really is. I, I would prefer to just write an ASCII doc and never have to think about Markdown again, but that's not, that's just that the tool chains of the world don't really support that. And I mean, if I'm honest, I'm not even sure if that's true. Like Markdown, it, 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 there is a certain so certain, it's really the links, the, the URL, the hyperlinks, that's the, the format of the hyperlinks in Markdown, I think is just kind of objectively better <laughs> than ASCII docs links. I, I just don't know what ASCII doc designers were thinking when they thought that it would look human friendly to have a big ugly URL. And then at the very end, the human readable hyperlink text that that URL belongs to. I mean, they probably thought, well, if we lead with the URL, then people know it's a URL. But I mean, that's, isn't that kind of the opposite point? That's the point of hyperlinked text is that you're reading the text and sub, 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 um, uh, sub the, uh, the, the link. And so we're just reversing it in ASCII doc. And I'm not sure why we do it that way. I mean, certainly in docbook, you wouldn't do it that way. You, you do the, the URL link or the, the URL tag. Um, Actually, I guess in a way, yeah, maybe that is why they did it actually. I don't know. Anyway, Markdown links are better than ASCII doc links, but other than that, ASCII doc is far superior to Markdown and I would use it all the time if I could. I can't, it's not everywhere like Markdown is. And I mean, heck, even Markdown isn't everywhere. I mean, that's the tragedy here is that we don't even get a, 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 a good markup light language everywhere. We just get it in some places, so. That's frustrating, but ASCII doc is not frustrating. It's really great. If you need a markup light language, give ASCII doc a try. That is all of the R's. So we got through the Q's and the R's, leaving just the S's and the T's, U, V, W, X, Z. Um, and there's a lot of S's. There's a lot of T's, I will admit. So we might be, we might be in those for a little while, but we're getting close to the end of the L section. And after the L section, there's the N series, which is the network software series. So that's what's in store in the future, but that's the future. This is now. Thanks for listening. I'll talk to you next time. Thanks for listening. My name's Klaatu. You can reach me anytime over email with feedback or comments, tips, or just to say hi. My email address is klaatu at slackermedia.info. 
You can also reach me on the Mastodon network, not Klaatu, at mastodon.xyz. The show's intro and outro music is by Fat Chance Lester. You can find their music on bandcamp.com or on gnuworldorder.info in the archive you'll find a music directory containing the album from which this music has been extracted. Until next time, thanks for listening, and keep the source open.